Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is the brand-centric 3PL with my friend Kate Clemmer-Terry. Kate is the Chief Commercial Officer at Outer Space, a 3PL made for brands by brands. The 3PL space is changing. Brands, especially the newer brands, are looking for something more from their 3PL. Operational expertise in a great tech stack is table stakes. Now many brands expect their 3PL to understand branding and merchandising so they can deliver a superior customer experience just like Kate and the Outer Space team delivers. Want to learn more? Check out my conversation with Kate. How's it going, Kate? It's going great. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Kate, I'm finally interviewing you. I was going to interview you years ago and it never worked out, so I'm finally getting to interview you. So please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. So I'm calling from our warehouse in Carlstadt, New Jersey. We are Outer Space is a 3PL that is geared towards direct-to-consumer and B2B brands, mostly mid- to high-end brands in the fa- what you could call the fashion space. So we have apparel, accessories, health and beauty aids, home, and we do all the fulfillment as well as lots of value-added services for them. We have a national footprint, and we've been around. We're relatively young in this world, so we, we uh, were launched in 2019 by two guys that had their own brand that didn't like the way 3PLs treated their brand, so they created their own version of it. And so we spun it off to be outer space in 2019. That is not the first time I've heard that story. Companies (laughs) that are struggling with 3PLs often start 3PLs. And again, when you say it's not, it's a newer company, there's a lot of newer companies because this is the nature of this business. And I know you said you serve a lot of mid to high-end brands. Where if you find yourself as a mid to high end brand and you find yourself at the wrong 3PL that's maybe been around for 40 years and say, we understand this business like the back of our hand, but do you understand what we want and how we want our customers treated? Exactly. So thus the title of this brand centric are because our founders had their own brand and because I came from brands, a lot of us did. We have sat on the other side of the table and we really truly do. A lot of 3PLs say that, but we really truly understand what it takes to grow a business on the other side of the table. So we're constantly orienting ourselves to that. And and that's our sweet spot, I would say. So who's your main customers? You want specific names or you want types of customers? No, just you don't have to give us any specific names. Just who's your sweet spot? Our sweet spot is brands that are there. Most of our brands are probably somewhere in 20 million in sales up to 100, 150, maybe 200 million. It's growing. Our brands are growing and we're growing. We went from one building a couple of years ago to now four. We have close to a million square feet. So the types of brands we're attracting are is growing at the same time. And then I would say, as I said, it's mid to high end brands, meaning they they have a high average order value, probably $80 and up. And most in the 150 to 250 range, because that they put an importance on certain things that is common amongst all of them and important for us as well. Value added things. 
they have are they are direct to consumer as well as, as multi-channel. Like everybody we had in our building, even if they started out as as just direct to consumer, they've had to morph into also selling wholesale as a as an expansion me- mechanism. So we do all of that. So when you say wholesale, what do you mean by that? Just for to clarify. So wholesale for us is they instead of selling direct to the consumer, they're selling to a big box or a three a retailer. So they're either and it's a variety from our side. So it's some of our brands use sell to Amazon, they sell to HSN, they sell to Nordstrom, Blue Mercury, tiny little mom and pops. Like it doesn't matter who it is. You if you have that skill set and you know how to do that type of pack out and special labeling and such, you can handle it. Yeah, the world has changed so much in this, and it's gotten really complicated. Years ago, Kate, if 20 years ago, if we said, oh, we're going to open a store, you and I, we're going to open a store, and we're going to sell high-end paper, paper products, journals and stuff, it would just be our store, retail location. And that's a very difficult business to manage. And if you have multiple locations, really difficult to manage. And then it just got harder when we said, we're going to start selling now online, Okay. But online for a long time meant mostly Amazon, right? And then as brands said, Amazon's great. It'll be one of our channels, but it can't be our only channel because, and some brands are finding Amazon's not a good fit for their brand for whatever reason. And and we all know that they're a marketplace. They aren't in the business of making your brand look great. They're in the business of creating a marketplace for the consumer. So when they say, Somebody comes and types in, I want Joe and Kate's really cool paper. And they go, hey, that's cool. We'll give you that. But here's 800 other choices of journals for you. And that might be good for the consumer. But you and I are going, come on, Amazon. Don't do that to us. So now we've got these companies saying, I'll have sell for my own website. And they need the Amazon-like experience. They need the exposure on Amazon. For sure. And that volume that brings, but that doesn't, it's not brand enhancing. It may be exposure, but it's not brand enhancing exposure, unfortunately, both in the way it gets shipped to you, as well as Amazon has made it fairly expensive to do business with them. The margin is obviously greater when you're doing it on your own at scale. When you're first starting out, you're probably spending a a ton on marketing and your margin is not as good as you'd hope it would be. At scale, you're, you definitely should be making more margin in your direct consumer businesses. Yeah. And there's brands and there's well-known like Nike, Allbirds, who are no longer working with Amazon because they felt like it wasn't a good fit. And I think they have 90 private brands now at Amazon, which is incredible what they've done. But if we do well enough with our cool journals, Kate, they're going to go, God, Kate and Joe are killing it. Look at this volume they're making over here. And guess who's going to compete against us? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those are the moments when you get enough exposure from there that then you can retract a little and do it on your own, hopefully. It's nice to see that there's other places that can offer them that exposure through wholesale. People are definitely expanding wholesale, not so much with Amazon as with other partners. Nordstrom's was a big friend to digital native brands for sure. That was like the first kind of key partner, I think, for a lot of them. It's a lot easier on the cosmetic side, health and beauty aid side, because Ulta and Sephora are fantastic partners, brand enhancing, branded experiences in the store is a totally different animal. It's very easy for that sector, I would say. Yep. I want to come back to all this in a minute, but tell us a little bit about you, Kate. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights. And then and when and why did you join the good folks over at 
outer space. Sure. So I grew up in Chappaqua, New York. Actually, it's about an hour north of the city. I am the youngest of seven. So I'm a little feisty, I would say, from that. Whoa. You're so spoiled. I know, so beaten up. My brothers always say, you, your career is entirely because we hammered the crap out of you when you were younger. But so I grew up in, in uh, Chappaqua. I went to college at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania, and I studied psychology and art, which probably in hindsight was a really good thing to study if I was going into the fashion industry, which is what I did. I think I fancied myself a designer, which never really happened. I was more a merchant I would say early days, I had the good fortune of meeting Mickey Drexler, and he asked me that question. I don't really get from your background what you should be. Are you a designer or are you a merchant? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, if I gave you a blank piece of paper, could you fill it? Or if I gave you a piece of paper with all the designs on it, could you tell me what it was going to sell? And I said, ah, I'd love to say it was the former, but it's definitely probably the latter. And so I ended up getting into merchandising early on at Banana Republic. And then I went, I, was at Ralph Lauren for a myriad of times, but always in merchandising, marketing. And then when e-commerce came around, so old I am that it wasn't around when I first started, when e-commerce came around, then I jumped into e-commerce. It was very good blend of my merchandising, marketing, and uh, always having an affinity for IT kind of projects. So I was fortunate to be around at the launch. I was the GM launching Ralph Lauren for Polo.com, which that was early days. And really wild west frontier. We did some very interesting and innovative things that, you know, today people don't even do. So it's funny. And then I went to Kate Spade and launched their website after that coach. And then Tommy Hilfiger, I ran global e-commerce. So I had a lovely liberal arts education in in fashion (laughs) through American brands. And then at that point I had four small children, four kids under the age of eight. And so I thought, I don't know that I really want to commute five days a week for 12 hours a day. So I started consulting. And there were lots of brands at that point that still didn't quite know how to do e-commerce themselves. They were either outsourcing it or they weren't doing it at all. So that was great for me. So I had a strong run of um, helping brands figure out their e-commerce strategy for brands like Michael Kors, Toomey, Crew, who else? I forget who else, a bunch of other brands. It was a very good run. Somewhere in the middle of that, I met Bruce Welty from Quiet Logistics. And he, they, they wanted somebody when they were bought in 2019, they wanted somebody who understood brands to help them, what we called merchandise our buildings, right? So to pick the right brands, be able to evaluate a brand, not just sign anybody, but evaluate the brands and their contribution to the building and kind of how does that all work? And so I thought that's actually an interesting left turn for me. I had, you understand logistics, obviously running e-commerce, it's a big part of, you know, what you're managing. But to go out of the fashion side and directly into that was an interesting sort of left turn, as I said, but it was very, it was really great brain exercise of just, it's, I love operations management and that, that whole study. Quiet was, I was there for four years. We grew the business very rapidly with the help of our investors at the time and then sold to American Eagle. And then I left American Eagle trying to figure out what my next move was and outer space got in touch with me. And I think you and I touched with this before we started that I could have, there was probably a lot of, not a lot, a decent amount of opportunities that I could go for. And I have to say that when I met the guys here at outer space, 
this was definitely the right fit of they had the exact same thought processes I do around how to treat a a brand from a 3PL's perspective, how to treat them like they are absolutely your partner. You are an extension of their company. There's no bureaucracy. There's no BS. It's just total transparent. Let's just both be focused on the top line growth and then we're both going to win. And so that I was like, okay, I'll I'll totally go in and, and help them grow their business. It's funny, you working for all those fashion brands, you have the aesthetic that they, fashion is one of those, one of those industries that the brand means so much. You you don't, if you go and buy a high end sweater somewhere or shoes, whether it's Nordstrom's or some other big box store, I don't call them big box, I guess they're department stores, whatever you want to call them, the luxury end of it. That was always a nice experience. Um, I always think of Nordstrom's not too far from my house that I still go to, and it's still a great experience. But how do we translate that to online? And um, a lot of times I talk about when I'm talking to logistics and transportation people, warehousing, whatever, we talk about we need a hybrid between the guys who's the technologist and the operator. True, we need those kind of hybrids, but we also need the hybrid between understanding the brand aesthetic and understanding the nuts and bolts of how it gets delivered to somebody's house or somebody's store. Yeah. Yeah. And what's important to the brand from that, that whole experience also. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, I've walked through a million warehouses in my career and most of them are dirty going back way back in the day when warehousing wasn't cool. (laughs) When you walk through a warehouse, it had stuff from 1945 on the shelves. It was dirty. It was dark. It felt dangerous to be walking through those facilities. Like they rickety shelves. Think I'm going to get hit by a forklift. And that that can't be how you're delivering product for, right. for right. brands, whether it's nutraceuticals or cosmetics or clothes. That It's a different world. So if somebody says, oh, we understand logistics and warehousing. We'll get that stuff there. And most of our business is with a whole bunch of industrial or automotive stuff. You're like, eh. <laughs> I get what you guys do. I admire it. It's, but you're in a different world than I am. Exactly. We have a clean beauty brand that has said to us, one of the reasons they picked us was because our warehouse was the cleanest warehouse they've ever been in in their lives. <laughs> so we're like, okay, good. That's nice. <laughs> what, and again, we'll get to packaging in a minute, but we've all receive stuff that looks a little scuffed up or a little dirty. And when you open that box, you're like, why is this very expensive thing I ordered online either torn, the box is torn, or it's dirty. And they go, oh, I got this nice ribbon on here. Did did this fall down in the dirt? I've seen that at my house. I think most of us have ordered that. You're like, that can't be the way. Yeah, not the right experience now for sure. So let's switch gears. Today's topic again is the brand centric 3PL. So we had, we talked about a few things. What makes you guys the brand centric 3PL before we hit record? So I want to go over some of those things. So the first thing you said, I thought was very interesting. You said that, oops, I lost my light over here. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) the first thing you said was that it's a growth generator, that that the warehousing can be a growth generator, your warehousing partner. Please elaborate. Yeah. So I think it's it makes sense that a lot of brands think about the warehouse as just where they're putting their products and the guy that's shipping it out. But the main focus for a brand is 
how I'm developing products, how I'm marketing it, how I'm getting out to the end consumer, right? They're so consumer focused. They kind of think of that as a necessary evil, as we say, right? There's a lot in that whole food chain that the that is the responsibility of the 3PL, right? If you think about between product, obviously we don't have much to do with the development of the product, but the sales experience, the brand messaging, maximizing your inventory, doing your distribution expansion. A lot of that, the 3PL is a large part of that equation. You really have to have a strong 3PL who is also flexible. Because I would say the other piece for a lot of these brands, because they are high growth, is scalability, right? They don't even know how high is high, as we used to say in merchandising. They don't know how high is high. So they may over forecast or they may really put all their eggs in one basket and it may not come to fruition or it may. And then all of a sudden they're blowing it out. They need a 3PL behind the scenes that's going to be able to react to all of that. So that back end group, your 3PL, is super important to your growth, not just for the reasons I just said, but also for other things that, again, if you're talking about mid to high end brands, it's important for them from a loyalty perspective for that whole process of shipping from when the customer hits the button to, to buy and then it shows up on their door. That in-between is really largely in our hands. And what we do to make it accurate, shipping accurately, shipping timely, for what you're unboxing to actually be nicely presented. It's not crumpled up in a poly bag and shoved into a corner of a box that it wasn't meant to be in. That is just, that's table stakes. It should be accurate and it should be timely, but it's not necessarily for, there's a lot of 3PLs out there that are not able to scale like they they don't really put the intelligence behind it, I would say, necessarily, because it seems like it's how hard can this be? I just throw it in a box and ship it out the door. But if you don't do that, the inverse of accurate and timely is really damaging to brands. So I feel like that piece is also a very influential part of how you can grow. So it's the the experience and the brand experience, the accuracy and timeliness, the ability to scale. And then there's other things, stop me when I'm going too far on this, but this is a very interesting topic to me. The other piece is that we do a lot of the value added things, like not just about the unboxing in terms of what you do, tissue and stickers and handwritten notes and things like that, that each brand does a little differently, how what they find essential or not. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we also do a tremendous amount of personalization. So in-house, this is part of the reason our founders who own their own brand ended up found, founding Outer Space was because they did they do a lot of personalization on their product, Nice Laundry. And so we have a very strong skill set for embroidery, laser engraving, CO2 engraving, oh, nice. foil stamping, like anything. And the way I say it in the sales process even is, if you figured out the basic underlying tenets of personalization, which means picking a product, matching it up with whatever that personalization is, and getting it done fast and good quality and out the door, you can do that with just about any process. So someone could come to us, we were doing laser engraving and someone came to us with a fabric that wasn't really taking to the laser. So we're like, oh, let's just go get a CO2 engraving machine. Like you, you can flex to any type of personalization or customization because you have that underlying streamlined process. But that one is huge, no returns. It's a great differentiator from the Amazons or Nordstrom's or the rest of the world, because that is a unique thing that you can offer aside from your wholesale partners. So I, it's being able to do those labor intensive things for our brands. It also is a differentiator and a growth, a growth init initiative for them. I got to tell you, I was walking through probably mostly automotive because I'm close to Detroit <clears throat> and this is a few years back and it was a 
friend of mine and he's walking me through his warehouse and I'm not from a warehousing background, but I'm from an automotive background. So I'd walk through a lot of these plants and I, I said, what are these, what is this operation doing? And he said, Joe, he says, the majority of what we do here, he goes, in fact, the majority of warehousing is you take something out of a big box, put it in a little box and you label it and you ship it. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, he goes, Sometimes you put it on a big truck and you send it to a plant, but he goes that a lot of times it's just big box, little box, label, ship. And that, that probably works really well if I'm saying, Hey, look, I just needed to buy a aftermarket automotive part. I don't necessarily care about the presentation of the box. If it's dirty, I'm like, I don't care. It's going to be in my garage or it's nobody cares. But the stuff you're talking about, again, if it's mid to high end brands, there is that customer experience on the other side. And they did get that customer experience when they went to Macy's or when they bought it at Michael Kors store, or when they went and bought it at Nordstrom's, they want those brands want that same experience when it gets unboxed. So it can't be, I just got a big box, put it in a little box and shipped. It. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not that simple. It should be, but it's not Yeah, There's just a lot of care that's taken, even if your SOP is to just take it and put it in a box and ship it, no fluff. It's There's still care that's got to be done to make sure that it's done timely and accurate and not messed up in the warehouse itself. So presentation matters. And again, you think about when you go to a retail store, I'm just thinking a grocery store, there's all those pop-ups, right? The displays that to get their brand message out. And so whatever their latest, like the, right now it's about college football playoff or Super Bowl or whatever the next holiday is. And they can't do that in a, when they ship it to a home. So we have a lot of things we're trying to, the messages we're trying to convey from the brand to the consumer without it being that old experience, which I say old three years ago, where I got way too much paper in my box when I ordered something. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like I'm a pollution criminal. <laughs> where I, was like, I got a massive box for this little product and it's got a hundred pieces of paper in it and I feel guilty throwing it all out. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, the that is a trend I would say in our industry also is we recommend to our brands like that initial experience with a customer, your first experience with a customer when they first start buying your product should be that more branded experience perhaps. But then as they move along, brand, customers actually want you to take out the fluff because it's not sustainable. They'd rather see that there's a recyclable poly mailer or whatever it is so that they don't feel like it's so wasteful. And that that's a trend that we wholly embrace and we think is important. I'd say there's one other piece that about the brand, about the 3PL being a growth driver also that we didn't touch on. That's an interesting other piece to this, which is the efficiency of the brand themselves in terms of their inventory. <clears throat> we went from pre-pandemic, people were, had maybe three or four months of supply when you're digitally native. You didn't have to fill shelves. You had three or four months of supply. After the pandemic, all of a sudden people had 10 months of supply, if not more, because they went long, didn't realize it was a blip, whatever the reason was. And so being able to help our brands figure out that inventory flow and keeping them mindful of how many months of supply they have and what's moving and what's not moving. But in addition, 
making the most out of the inventory they do have, right? So returns for a lot of our brands, obviously health and beauty returns is not a big deal, but apparel and accessories and footwear, the returns are high. They're anywhere from 15 to 25, 30%, depending on the brand. Not, not getting that 30% back into inventory is it's death at, for a brand. That's way too much to be going into damages or seconds or whatever. So we do a lot of refurbishing. Again, it has to do with the fact that we have a high aperture value. It's not going to make sense for you to spend a dollar to whatever steam or dry clean or whatever it is, a product, if the product's only $40 in retail, you're not going to re recoup that. But for these higher end products, it's totally worth it. And so getting our goal is always to have at least 97% of a brand's return to get back into inventory. Um, and that's important. It just, that's the cyclical nature. And, and for that next customer, not to feel like that ever <laughs> had been shipped out before, it looks as perfect as it did the, the second it came into the warehouse. So that was a piece I, I left off that I think is also really important these days, especially. Oh, yeah, that returns. Obviously, we're going to get much better at that. We're trying to figure that out. Brands, I'm like a broken record on this, but I'll say it anyway. Brands have to do a better job on the sizing. And I always use the example. I won't say it again now today, but my mom watches that home shopping network. She always, my mom's older and she says, yeah, you can buy on that. And the sizes are right. Brands for the most part don't. And I know women's brands have always been crazy on the sizing <laughs> and men's brands, especially as you get on the higher end, you're like, I, I remember trying on a, a jacket and I was wearing like an extra, extra large. Now I'm not that big <laughs> like, and it was, too, it fit me like a t-shirt. I was like, they go, that's what happens on high end brands. I was like, it's not that high end of brand and I'm not that big. <laughs> like, yeah. What the hell? But anyway, getting back to it, I love that you're getting it back to inventory because we are all struggling. I hear people say it and I'm not the expert. I'm just listening and trying to process. I've heard people say, if you're a good customer of that brand, we're not going to even ask you to send it back. And I'm thinking, yeah, but if it doesn't fit and you're asking me, oh, don't worry, Joe, you can keep that, that, that sweater that doesn't fit. I don't want to keep it. Now I feel like an idiot. What am I going to give it to a friend? What, what am I doing here? I'm going to give it to Goodwill. I might as well send it back. And um, I've also heard there is a lot of fraud going on in that end. And we have to figure out how to manage that. And I think a return is what, 10 times the cost of sending the original shipment. And it's very unpredictable. We don't know when they're coming. So we have to do a better job. And I know you guys are all, especially the high-end brands. And again, it has to still be that experience that they expect with that brand. Yeah, your conversion definitely improves the more lenient you are with the returns process. But as you said, picking the right thing going out the door in the first place from an apparel perspective, making sure your photographs are correct, all of that good stuff is important on the one end. But then making it very efficient there's so many guys now out there of Optoro and everybody's getting bought. The happy returns of the world and all of those guys who are trying to streamline that process so that it's a more efficient process. But the a real bulk, I think, of the labor involved in this is really on our side. Like, how do we help our brands process returns, which is just something they can't avoid or when they can't avoid it, and then recoup the inventory, not spend their too much of the value of the item on getting it back into inventory. That's definitely yep. important. By the way, I'm going to throw a little wild card in because I've just had a conversation with somebody offline the other day, last Friday. And I mentioned that I love Costco. I can't help myself. I just love Costco. And I still buy on Amazon. 
And those are two wildly successful companies. They both have membership fees. So I have, I'm a member of Prime and I, I'm a member at Costco. And I noticed I was at Best Buy the other day. Best Buy now says join, I don't know, what their whatever their club is, whatever their rewards is, you pay. And I think we're going to see certain brands say, we want to be able to provide a better experience and we want to be able to know you better. And I think part of that strategy is related to returns. So if I'm paying, I'm a paying member and they say, we've been working with Joe for years and he pays us this much every year just for membership fees. We know who he is. He's not ripping us off. We can be a little more comfortable when he says he wants to return this. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about the loyalty factor of it, right? So the loyalty programs in big brands mid to high end is huge. It's just a huge recognition of that customer's loyalty in you and it pays for itself. The the happier. Yeah. Somebody told me there was this crazy story. He said this, somebody bought, I think it was $2,500 worth of stuff over one quarter and then proceeded to return all of it. $2,500 worth of clothing. So basically they're out and about looking like a million bucks. Everyone's like, I don't know where they got all that money to dress so well. And and they returned all of it, most of it damaged or or well used. I'm like, that's crazy. Anyway, I want to talk, let's see. There was something, put a note down here about alignment and collaboration. How do you guys over at Outer Space do alignment and collaboration with your brands? Yeah. When we are assessing, actually what we say to brands about when they're assessing a 3PL and also the way we assess brands and whether they're a good fit for us is how collaborative they are. Are they collaboration minded? So there's very often that this relationship is built as an adversarial relationship, which is not the way we work and not, I have zero interest in working in an adversarial relationship. I'm not good in bureaucratic relationships. So the way we hit, this is one of the things that appealed to me about outer space. We know we will get more out of this relationship when we're working together towards that common goal of top line growth, right? If I'm constantly saying to myself, oh, I spent a dollar on that brand on XYZ, whatever it was. And so now I have to figure out how to get a dollar 20 out of them. If that's constantly my mindset, I'm not going to be growing very well. And I'm not really helping the brand grow. So we definitely from our transparency. So we have reporting that shows you exactly where we are on SLAs, exactly where your billing is intra month before you get your final bill. Like we are trying to make it as open and honest as humanly possible so that you feel that you can trust us. It's back to what you were saying before about our relationship with brands, our consumer relationship with brands is around trust. And it's the same thing here. It's if you don't have the trust between you and the, and your client, then it's just an adversary adversarial relationship by nature. There's not, there's nothing you could do about that. We spend a lot of energy to make it collaborative. So some of the things we do is the tools is one piece of it. The other is we have, everybody has client success or customer service or whatever you want to call them. Ours are called client ops managers. Ours are very much, they're semi-dedicated because you don't get your own, unless you add a lot of volume, you might get your own, but you only share it with two other brands. That's actually unusual. In other places I've worked, it was more like five or six brands or eight brands, 10 brands, whatever. So you're getting someone, the majority of somebody's time. The people we hire for these roles are very educated, very smart, very operational savvy. And they're your eyes and ears. It's like we we say to you, they're an extension of your brand in our building. So they are your eyes and ears on the floor. They're in the building where your product is. 
and they are your eyes and ears to go run out to the floor, talk to ops. Is this working? Is that not working? And so the brands feel like, oh, this is fantastic. I don't feel like it's like a black hole that my product's right, in and I never right. get to see it. I actually know what's going on in the building. And when they come and, and visit all the time and we welcome them to be here at key moments in their year for launches or whatever, we, we welcome them coming and doing brand presentations to the people that are picking and packing their products. So there's a lot of ways that we make this a true partnership. Everybody says that and it sounds like BS, honestly. It sounds very trite or whatever. But we really believe that because it's actually more enjoyable to do oh, our jobs when it's a partnership. I've said this on the podcast many times and I've lived it. And in my whole career, I've lived this. When you have a relationship where your customer or your supplier holds your, usually it's a customer, will hold you at arm's length. You can't give them everything they need because they won't make the time. And I remember running a little 3PL where we had a customer and we were doing a very good job. And I always wanted to have, I wanted to have a regular quarterly meeting or monthly meeting, ideally monthly for them because of their volume. They never wanted it. They're like, no, you're doing good. You're doing good. And I was like, we're going to lose that business. If we can't get in, and what I mean in is a relationship, we're going to lose the business. And we did lose the business. And we saw it coming a million miles away because they wouldn't, they just for whatever reason, didn't want to let us in. They didn't want a relationship. Anyone who holds you at arm's length, you're going to have, you're not going to be able to do the good job that you want to do, which is demoralizing. And then at some point they're going to go away. And so you got to find the right, you use partner and it is right. And that means you vet. That means you're not dating, engaged. You're getting married to that supplier. Yeah, exactly. So we are picky in the on the other side of that as well around evaluating if this partner, you can tell immediately in the pricing and negotiation process and contract negotiation, you can tell if they are collaboration-minded or not in a hot second. You can tell it. And we won't partner with somebody that we're like, oh, forgot. No, no way. They are not a collaborative person by nature. They are they understand this relationship as an us and them. And so that's the way they want it to be. Then we're right. not the right partner for them. And I know there's a little bit of transaction in all business, but nobody wants a transactional relationship. My friend, Matt Collins, owns Sun Ant Interactive. He always says, we only want to be part of good stories. Life is too short. We only want to be part of good stories. And I was like, that is so true. I don't want a customer that just goes, Eh, you guys are better than the other guys. Um, I don't care. Just half-assed. I don't want that. Anyway, I'm going to try and summarize all the stuff we talked about here. And then um, I want to get your final thoughts. You probably probably missed some things we want to talk about. But you talked about how you you over at Outer Space, with your team at Outer Space, are brand-centric. And you talked about that's really about being a growth generator. And that really begins with that partnership, which not just a word, that the way you want to work. And that means you're aligned. That means you collaborate and it can't be nickel and dime. You can't always be looking, how do we maximize the, the, the how do we maximize the margin on every one of our, our business relationships? We talked a little bit about the customer experience and the unboxing and how important that is, especially when you talk about brands. Not every brand cares. Again, if I'm delivering, if I'm delivering industrial products, maybe it doesn't matter that much. Maybe just as long as the label's correct, how it shows up really matters when you're talking about brands. You talk about personalized personalization and brand and value added. I think that's big. People talk, if you look at websites of people who do warehousing or fulfillment, they always have value added as the very last service they offer. It always is the 
I'm a, I, I did a lot of websites in the past. It's always the one that's the sketchiest uh, <laughs> text because they're like, in theory, we will do this, <laughs> but you guys are actually doing value added services. And that is awesome because most times logistics, warehousing, transportation is just a cost. It's it, it, again, in the lean vernacular, it is considered waste unless you're doing something like this. And then we didn't talk about it too much, but you said before we hit record, being on time and in full without it being damaged is just table stakes in, in the warehousing and fulfillment business. Enough of my blather. Kate, give us your final thoughts on the topic. I would say the the big key that we always talk about here is that brands need to really evaluate that relationship, even the ones they have. Like a lot of them, unless it's super painful, they the idea of having to move warehouses is just overwhelming to people. It can be disruptive to business. And so I get that it's, this is a very high involvement purchase. And But I think you have to broaden your um, definition of how you're valuing your 3PL based on some of the stuff we've just talked about, right? Like the accuracy factor, the on-time factor, the things that they can do to help you grow your business. So what are those, what's that scorecard, and if you will, of those more, the things that you may not even be considering are in your 3PL's wheelhouse, right? So the scalability factor, the extension of distribution channels, et cetera. Like you, you have to broaden your scorecard is really my final thing. And I would say, and that relationship piece. So that's always like the big underlying for me is this, do you have the relationship where you trust that 3PL? And you're open with them about your struggles in your business, your good part, because you don't fear that they're going to use it against you. And that's what you would get with us. So I would say a shameless plug for outer space. That is what you would get with us. We don't use, we, we want to figure out how we can help you with your business. We're not looking at, oh, that's a new way I can charge them because that's a sensitive subject. You know, That's just not good. That's not our nature. Yep. So what I'll do is, Kate, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, put a link to your website and any other links you and your marketing team give me. So who once one more time, who's the sweet spot for you guys, not only just in terms of size, but also what industries do you guys typically work in? All right. So apparel, accessories, including footwear, anything, honestly, we do home furnishings, we do nutraceuticals. There's a variety of skill set that goes behind that in terms of expiration date, all the way to dangerous goods to whatever. It's mostly, it's not huge product. So we don't have things that are very big and bulky. Probably the biggest thing we have is a pet crate that's meant to look like furniture. We wouldn't do mattresses or furniture or things like that. It's just our buildings aren't really set up. But our buildings are set up to do anything from a tiny little lipstick all the way to big puffer jacket or what have you, because we're very flexible from that standpoint. And then mid to high end, as I said. Awesome. Again, I think what I'm, I interview a lot of people and what I'm seeing is more and more segmentation. We didn't ever segment warehousing and fulfillment. Warehousing and fulfillment was just warehousing and fulfillment. And you've worked, you've worked in the, again, in the fashion space and also in this space for a while too. And it just feels like we're starting to see if you're a brand, there's no reason for you to have your stuff sitting adjacent to industrial products or to food. No, <laughs> no, that you are absolutely right because that that was definitely a conversation at Quiet when I first got there, and even here. Why can't we do ink cartridges? I said if if that's part of merchandising the building, right? Is if all your brands are like minded in their strategies, even if it's a a supplement versus a sweater, it doesn't really matter. If they're like-minded in the way they approach their end customer, then it's easier for us to come up with strategies that solve them all. And again, it's 
back to it. It's the way we're helping them grow, which is not what most warehouses are thinking about. Most warehouses are thinking about you take up space. I take the, the item from the big box. I put it in the small box and I ship it out the door. So they don't really care if you're right. an ink cartridge next to a cashmere sweater because <laughs> that's the way they think of it. It's exactly what you hit it on the head. <laughs> I don't have any original thoughts. I just, I mimic what other people have said on my podcast. <laughs> so, <It works. laughs> anyway, Kate, I like to interview smart, interesting people like you, people who are killing it in our space. Who else should I interview? Oh, that's a good question. We've hit on a few different vendor relationships that we have from here. I would say one, the returns group, but probably has been interviewed a million times, but there's another piece the the order management system there's a partner of ours Mike Averto at, at Channel Ape Channel Ape is a small business but they are very very collaborative which is part of the reason why we love them and they are an, an order management system for brands that need to be able to split inventory over multiple route orders to, to multiple locations whether that's fulfilling from their stores fulfilling from multiple warehouses what have you and not all 3PLs WMSs allow for order management systems. So sometimes it's easier to just plug in outside. So I would say Channel is a really interesting partner. Great brands behind it. I'd love to interview them. Yeah. And um, I would love to talk to Mike. And I always think at one time, if you had a WMS, you were special. Oh, we got a WMS. There's still a lot of warehousing companies that don't have that for whatever reason. They're doing Excel spreadsheets. But now we, it seems almost like everybody who has a WMS now says, in addition, we need a warehouse execution system, and then we need an integration layer so we can connect all of our technologies, our hardware, our scanners and everything. And now more and more the order management systems, just kind of part of doing business in this. And again, we, as we try and get faster, better and less expensive, we have to keep getting better with the tech. So I love it. So what conferences will we see you and the fine folks from outer space at? You you mentioned Manifest before we... Yes, I will be at Manifest. Yes, so I'll see you there. We will be at Manifest for sure. We will most likely be at Shop Talk. And then we are big fans of The Lead. I don't know if you've gone to The Lead. The Lead is very much... It started out very much digital and native, but they get great brands. Uh, great brands are very much up our, Where's that up one our alley there. The Lead's in New York. It's in New York uh, in July, usually. That makes it easy usually. for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they do a they do a they do a few smaller sessions also, but all all in New York. I, they might have something in LA as well. But those are the big ones. I think we'll probably attack. Oh, maybe NRF. I don't know. Still debating. <laughs> That's also in New York, isn't it? Yeah, but I just am not. Jacob Javits Center is gigantic, and so it's a little bit of an. It's really like on a shop talk. It's an abyss. <laughs> Some of the manifest is huge and it's going to get even bigger. And I know there's going to be more and more shippers. In fact, I'm interviewing some of the shippers who will be at manifest. And I think it's going to be over 4,000 people this year. And Oh, wow. Yeah. And what I, last year was my first year there. And I think what I learned is you have to plan ahead. I went in with the idea that I'm going to wing it. Bad plan. (laughs) You cannot wing it at a conference with 4,000 people. Yeah, no, you just, it's like shop talk. You're just wandering around hoping you see somebody. Yeah. Yeah. It's ma- not manifest, and I haven't gotten it yet, but manifest has the app. Oh, you yeah, can start good. using the app way in advance. And I highly recommend it. You get to manifest, great conference. Use the app for a month before and a month or two months after because the app is worth the price of admission. Thank you for that. Yeah. Enough of my blather. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
what I'll do again, I'll put a, a link to your LinkedIn profile, link to your website, and any links you have for me, I'll put in the show notes so people can reach out and talk to you. And I love what you guys are doing. Again, much, much needed. Uh, again, it's uh, we're starting to see more and more segmentation in this in the warehousing space. We don't if you, for any business you want somebody who's on on the warehousing and fulfillment and who gets you, who comes from where you come from. It doesn't make sense to say, oh, industrial, food, pharma, clothes, <laughs> all go in the same aisle. It makes no sense. We can't keep working that way. It, it worked when this was just a little blip on the economy. Now it's becoming a major part of the economy. So Yeah, definitely. Anyway, Kate, I'm glad I finally got a chance to interview <laughs> you. And thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you. It was really a pleasure talking to you. I'm, I'm happy we were able to fit it in. Awesome. Finally. Awesome. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.